This morning we are looking at Abram's continued journey away from the place where he met the Lord in Canaan. Now your outline says proceeding to Canaan because I am human and I make typos. Um, It is proceeding to Egypt. Last time we had his pilgrimage to Canaan. We saw him come to the place where the Lord said, this is your land, I'm giving it to your descendants. And then we watched the mystifying moment where Abram just kept going without any instruction from the Lord. And we saw he went down as far as the Negev. And now we see that he keeps going all the way into Egypt. So our point this morning that you can have at the forefront of your mind as we walk through this passage is that before Abram was a spiritual father, he was a spiritual infant. Abram, just like the rest of us, has to grow in maturity, has to grow in his faith as he grows to know who God is and how trustworthy his promises are. Abram's also going to get a good dose of his own inability to do things apart from God, such as to be a blessing in the land. This isn't something he's able to do on his own, and God teaches him that, uh, partly through this episode this morning. So this passage shows us Abram at his worst. A baby believer who has not yet learned to walk by faith. Abram's sinful behavior follows a very regular progression from self-will to arrogance, to fear, deception, injury, and shame. This is what happens as we walk away from God's will. We try to impose our own will over it and make ourselves gods, and we are not very good gods. We simply cannot live up to the righteousness of God, and so what comes is destruction. This passage explains Abram's initial failure to be a blessing, and he must learn to depend on God. This is the only way he's going to be a blessing in the land, is if he trusts in God to do it through him, rather than trying to do it himself. And so we do start with Abram's fear. We see that as he has now walked away from that place where God brought him in, where we watched him faithfully leave his country in Haran and enter into the land where God carried him faithfully and safely through, now as he is journeying off on his own, we see him become frightened. And this coincides here with his departure. So it says in Genesis 12.10, Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Now, what exactly is this land where the famine was? Because it doesn't specify it for us there, and we might be tempted to look up to verse 6 and say, well, the land was all the land of Israel that he was going to give to them. Well, Abram doesn't have the borders yet of this land. He doesn't know exactly how far it's going to stretch. He doesn't get that until Genesis 13. So we have to follow the context here. It says, Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Moreh. Now the Canaanite was in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So just in this verse, verse six, we have two different reference for the land. The first land that he passed through was between Haran and Shechem. The next land was Shechem. This land, the closest referent to it is the Negev. Abram journeyed on continuing toward the Negev, which is the southern region or the southern country, the southern land. This is the land where there was a famine. And you know, it doesn't really surprise us. 
He went from this northern point in Shechem down to that southern point at the north point of the Dead Sea where the land is fertile. He left this very rich soil. You've got the Jordan Valley there uh, just to the east of it. And he kept going down, down, down into the desert. Now, it wasn't that much of a desert back then. This was a fresh and new world. The flood had just occurred about three to 400 years before this. And so the arid atmosphere probably wasn't quite the same as it is today. But nonetheless, we can see the features of the land, the geological features, that this has always been a wilderness of some sort. We also see that from this point, from the Negev, Abram went down to Egypt. This might also confuse us since Egypt is west of the Negev and not south. But this is most likely talking about the elevation since uh, he would have been walking downhill most of the way into Egypt. This only makes sense. And as Moses is writing this as well, they had made the journey from Egypt into the Negev and they went up to do that. They went uphill. And so this makes sense as well. This is how they wrote in the New Testament and the rest of the Old Testament whenever they depart from Jerusalem. They're going down from Jerusalem, whether they go north or south, because Jerusalem is the high point. And so wherever they go, they're going downhill. And so this is just the way that Hebrew works, especially in that geological region. Whenever they're going downhill, they go down. But it also seems to uh, indicate a bit of Abram's moral standing as well. Because there are other terms that could have been used in the Hebrew to um, explain this, but it's bookended by his going down and then coming back up. Just as he had gone south from Shechem, he went south into Bethel and Ai, away from God's presence, and he continued away from God's presence down into Egypt. Here, in Genesis 13.1, after this whole episode in Egypt, we're going to see him begin to head back up. He's going to make it as far as Bethel and Ai before he calls on the Lord. Abram's travels are punctuated by uh, intervals of, uh, of basically conflicting wills. Originally, we have God telling Abram to leave and then God moving Abram out according to Acts 7.3. Then from the uh, oaks of Moreh at Shechem, we see God appearing to Abram to tell Abram, this is the land where I wanted you to go. And it's from this point where Abram picks up and says, okay, thank you, Lord. I'll take it from here. So he goes to Bethel and Ai, and then he goes to the Negev, and now we see him continuing into Egypt. Well, Abram has promises from the Lord, promises that the Lord is going to fulfill. And so God's not going to let his servant escape from his will. He is going to drag him back up because he's got promises to fulfill. And part of that is going to have discipline involved because a father who loves his son will discipline his child. After this, he is going to be sent away, cast out, not willingly leaving Egypt, but being shamefully escorted out across the border by Pharaoh. And imagine that. First, he is following the will of God. He imposes his will over God's. And because he departed from his God, now he is being summarily dismissed by a pagan ruler. 
How often do we as believers depart from the will of God thinking that we know how to do it now, we're grown up, we can handle it. And then we demonstrate our own shame in front of unbelievers. It is a harsh reality that sometimes believers act more morally reprobate than unbelievers. I mean, sometimes we just get comfortable sitting in God's promises saying, well, God's going to do it one way or another, so I can act however I'd like. Where the unbelievers, they're at least trying to earn their salvation somehow. They're trying to get good karma or be nice to people so that the universe rewards them. Sometimes Christians do just get lazy. We no longer walk in God's will because we know where we're going. We can mistreat people. That's fine. We can gain seek all over the world. And at least we'll get rich here because when we go to heaven, we've got a promised location. But guess what? We're not building up rewards there. So what we see here is Abram getting rich in the world, but not in the Lord. And God has promised him blessing, divine blessing. And he's going to do that himself. So Abram here is on his journey down. And he's going to be down for the rest of the morning here. But next, or not next week, in two weeks, we'll pick back up with him beginning his journey back into faithfulness. And I promise you that this little section of three chapters in Genesis does have a very redemptive ending. But Abram's purpose in going to Egypt is to sojourn there. Now, sojourn just means to dwell temporarily. He is going to go there as a foreigner, something that Hebrews tells us he was doing in the land of Canaan also. He was hanging around as a foreigner in that land. But here he is abandoning for the time being the promises of God. He's got intentions to go back, but he just wants to wander around down there for a little time on his own. Notice again this emphasis on in the land. There's famine in the land. The famine was severe in the land. Now he's in the Negev and he's about to head into Egypt, but he is concerned that God's faithfulness towards him is not holding fast. God has promised him land. Now he left that plot of land where God had first met him, but who's to say that Abram doesn't think that this land is his too? In fact, eventually it is going to be given to him. In chapter 13, God's going to give this section of land to him. But Abram is sitting here in a barren land with a barren wife, having received promises of a child and a land in which he can have a nation. And I don't know, if I were him, I'd probably be thinking, man, God's not that good at keeping his promises. But Abram may not realize, well, I walked out of God's will. I stepped away. God's faithful. I'm not. In fact, it appears that the land that he departed, where he had met God in Shechem, where Canaan or the Canaanites were, there's no evidence that there was a famine up there. He could have headed back north. Just a few verses later in Genesis 13, probably no more than a few weeks or a month, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, and it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. The land north where he had departed was like the land that he was going into in Egypt. 
In fact, it was even compared here to the Garden of Eden. This is just on the east of Shechem. He would have walked through this land to get to Shechem. Abram left the good promises of the Lord. He walked away. And we see him taking matters into his own hands to fix it as well. And rather than walking back into where he met the Lord, he keeps going into another land. So he's got these two promises that have problems that need overcoming. Rather than trusting the Lord to overcome these problems, he's going to try to do it himself. Last week we saw that Sarah was barren and that they brought Lot as their heir as a solution to this problem. God's giving him all this blessing, all this land. He's promising he's going to be a nation. Well, he knows he needs a descendant and his wife is barren, so let's bring Lot. God's going to correct this. But when they get to the land, it's occupied by the Canaanites. Abram begins to fix this by moving to the Negev, a barren wasteland where there has never been as much occupation as northern parts of Israel. But here's another problem. Now this land is barren. The solution is for him to abandon that land, at least for the time being, to risk his own life, to risk the seed promise through Sarai. But at least this one, he as his own God, thinks he can solve. You see, there's nothing he can do about the land being barren. There's nothing he can do about his wife being barren. But he can go into a fruitful land and lie his tail off to save his own life. So I, I can't get my food. I can't feed myself. But at least I, as my own God, can save my own life. Naturally, as acting as our own gods by imposing our will over gods leads to fear, dread, despair. This isn't the first time Abram's going to act like this. In Genesis chapter 20, we see another incident like this with Abimelech. It says, Now Abram journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev and settled down in Kadesh and Shur. Then he sojourned in Gerar. Abram said of, his, uh, of Sarai, his wife, She is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarai. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman who you have taken, for she is married. Now Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a nation, even though blameless? Now, Moses is a very good writer, and he mirrors these stories to show us who is at blame, or who is at fault here, and who bears the blame. He handles Abram's story, especially here in Egypt, very delicately. And the rabbis who have later written on this have picked up on that, noting that Sarai was most likely violated here in Egypt, where she wasn't by Abimelech. But Moses is putting the blame on Abram, because Abimelech was cleared of guilt because he had not come near. He did not go near him, or did not go near her. But the same word, which isn't actually that common of a word in Hebrew, is when he came near to Egypt, uh, it came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. 
when the Egyptian or and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Abram's flirting on the edge of disaster. He is coming near to what he should not. And he is putting his wife in danger because of this. And it's all for fear of being killed. And so he tells her, please say that you are my sister so that it may go well with me because of you and that I may live on account of you. You all want, or I guess all of you ladies want a guy like Abram, right? Please put yourself in this terrible situation so I can get off scot-free. He is not being a brother, not being a good brother, not being a good husband, not being a good neighbor. He is not demonstrating love towards his wife, Sarai. He is not walking with the Lord. Now we might say, well, he's not technically lying. She is his sister. But it's not presented as a half-truth here so much as it's presented as a lie. There really isn't so much a thing as a half-truth. Besides, she actually is my sister, Abram says to Abimelech the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. Well, this sister relationship doesn't matter in the context of Pharaoh and Abimelech. It's the husband-wife relationship that matters. That's the place where Abram decided to conceal the truth. This is the place where he bears guilt. It came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is the kindness which you will show to me everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. Well, now wait a second. They had hatched this plot in Haran before they ever left the land. Abram had already planned to sacrifice his own wife for his own well-being. Now, I don't think he saw this as harshly as we look on it. There is a Hurrian custom from the land of Haran in which the brother was actually responsible for the wife or for the sister. And he is the brother. And so he's thinking, okay, we are going to use that relationship. Because when a suitor comes for the woman, he has to deal with the brother. And so while a husband is not tolerable to a would-be suitor and is just standing in the way and would have to be killed. For a brother, it is his prerogative to give the sister to whom he will. And that will come with a price, come with bartering. We see this happen in Genesis 24 with Laban. Laban is Rebekah's brother. And when the servants are sent up to, uh, to get Rebekah, we see him dealing with both Laban and Bethuel, Rebekah's father. The brother is involved in this deal of uh, betrothing his sister. It says, Then Laban and Bethuel replied, The matter comes from the Lord, so we cannot speak to you, bad or good. Here is Rebekah before you. Take her and go. 
and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. So the deal here is hatched between Laban and Bethuel, but look at who gets paid. The servant brought out articles of silver and articles of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and her mother. Now, some have speculated that Bethuel may have been dead by this time and that he's only introduced into the text as Laban speaking for him. I don't think there's good enough evidence for that. I think this payment was made to her brother because this was the custom of that day. The brother took on the responsibility of the sister. Some even believe that a husband, when he married a sister, would all, or a, a woman would also adopt her as a sister, even if they weren't related by blood, in order to increase his authority and to increase his um, ability to speak for her. The brother-sister relationship was very strong in Hurrian culture. But look at how this continues as well. Then he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night when they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. But her brother and her mother said, let the girl stay with us a few days, say 10. Afterwards, she may go. They're delaying the finalization of this betrothal. I think this is what Abram is counting on. When a suitor comes seeking his wife, he'll be able to haggle over the details and delay it long enough to get away. I don't think he is operating on the assumption that if any man asks for his wife, he's just going to ditch her and run. But I think he's expecting that he'll have some time to wheel and deal. And this will allow them to escape. It's not a bad plan, but it's a dishonest one. It's a worldly plan, and it gets him into a lot of trouble. Because guess what? You can haggle with uh, just about anyone except the king. When Pharaoh comes calling from Sarai, tough cookies. You kind of got to say yes or risk your life anyways. And most likely, both he and Sarai thought, better that we both live and Sarai gets violated than Abram dies and Sarai gets violated. Because one way or another, the king's going to get what he wants. At least by their assumptions. Genesis 24 56 says, he said to them, do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. In order for this servant to get away with Rebecca without delaying, he reminds him that this doesn't just come from my master. This comes from the Lord, something they had recognized earlier. They can't really refuse this request. So they blessed Rebecca and said to her, may our sister become thousands of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gate of those who hate them. Now we're not going to read it, but in Genesis 26, Isaac does the same thing to Rebekah that Abram did to Sarai and claims that she is his sister. And guess what? She's not. In this case, she is not his sister. She's his cousin, but not a sister. And that is held with uh, just as much ire as Abram and Sarai's treatment of one another. As well, we see in Genesis 34, in the account of the rape of Dinah, that it is the brothers that come to the defense of the sister and begin to barter with Shechem. 
Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, If I find favor in your sight, then I will give whatever you say to me. Ask me what, or ask me ever so much bridal payment and gift, and I will give according as you say to me, but give me the girl in marriage. But Jacob's sons answered, Shechem and his father Hamor with deceit, because he had defiled Dinah their sister. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition we will consent to you, if you will become like us, in that every male of you be circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters for ourselves, and we will live with you and become one people. Now, we know the rest of this story. The brothers go in and massacre all of these men while they are laid up because of this circumcision, unable to fight. We see in Genesis 12, the beginning of Abram's failure to be a blessing in the land. And we see in Shechem, the failure of Israel to be a blessing in the land. This is ultimately why they get cast out of the land, sent into Egypt for correction. <clears throat> Genesis thirty four seventeen. if you will not listen to us to be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and go. Abram could have said no to just about any dowry. Said, nope, not enough. I am taking my sister and we're leaving. But I don't think he expected Pharaoh to come calling after his wife. Oops. Now, most of the parallels that I'm bringing out this morning are going to be from the book of First John, because we all just spent about six months looking at the book of First John, so it's very familiar to us. And there's a lot of good parallels here, because First John is also about spiritual growth, about maturing in the faith, and this is what Abram is doing. He is slowly maturing in the faith, and for some of us, that process is very slow as well. But right at the beginning of 1 John in chapter 2, verse 3 says, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Abram does not know God very well, and he's demonstrating that by his failure to trust God's promises. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Abram, because he has walked away from the will of the Lord, because he has not trusted in his promises, demonstrates his deceit. He demonstrates what is in him, which is not the truth. Now, we've we spent a whole class period in this in our interlocked series, and it was a pretty fun um, session, but we looked at what is truth and what is a lie. You see, a lie is not a talent that we have. Often we treat it like that. Oh, I pulled the wool over that guy's eyes. Look at how good I am at deceiving people. The world speaks like this. But lying is not an ability. It is a disability. It is not the presence of the ability to swindle. It is the absence of the ability to deal in the truth. And when we take over God's will and impose it with our own and we become our own gods, we necessarily cannot be dealing in the truth. We have to default to lies because we have a deficit of truth within us and we must depend on God for truth. And so Abram 
is not able to deal in the truth here. In order to save his skin apart from God, he deals with him with the situation in his weakness. John continues, whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. Love and fear is often played off uh, one another in the book of First John because we really can't be loving as we ought to when we're afraid for our own lives. It's when we are settled and confident in the promises of God that we are able to uh, understand God's love and demonstrate and display it to others. First John 2, 9, he says, the one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. We see that as Abram walks through this land, walking in lies, he leaves a trail of carnage behind him. He is not dealing well with his brothers, not dealing well with his sister, not dealing well with his wife, not dealing well with Pharaoh. This one is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Abram walked away from the light. He walked away from the revelation of God, God's revealed will, which told him, this is the land here in Shechem where I want you to stay. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Abram is wandering through the world here without direction physically and without direction uh, morally. And so we see him operating on a different principle of wisdom, not the principle of God's revealed wisdom, but the principle of man's earthly, natural, and demonic wisdom. James chapter 3 says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant, which is the source of fear, and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. So John wrote this in about 90 AD. Over 2,000 years between what Abram did and what John wrote. And there's been about 2,000 years between what John wrote and us today. Not much has changed in any of these cases. Faithfulness is faithfulness. God's revelation demands the same amount of trust and faith. God's word is just as trustful and faithful as it ever has been. Well, Abram ends up getting rich from this deal. And a lot of the commentaries will say that God used this to increase his wealth. And I think, in a sense, perhaps, but this is not seen as a good thing that Abram has gotten rich this way. What does it matter if he has these camels and donkeys and servants? This isn't the kind of blessing that is first and foremost in God's mind. This is adjacent to that blessing. And it's wealth acquired by the world, the goods of the world, apart from God. Now, as we walk through and see just how Abram handles this, it is eerily similar 
to the Genesis 3 account of the fall. But watch what place Abram assumes when he becomes a liar. He assumes the place of the serpent. He is acting in the serpent's cosmos system. He is acting as a child or a seed of the serpent. God is going to train him to act righteously. But this is the natural state of man apart from God. Now the serpent was more crafty. Crafty here meaning earthly, natural, and demonic wisdom. Wheeling and dealing and swindling to get our way. More crafty than any of the beasts of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Satan's first lie was a half-truth. Look at how much destruction that did. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan tempts the woman to impose her will over God's, to become the arbiter of good and evil, to decide for herself what is good and what is bad, rather than depending on the revealed will of God, who says this is good or this is bad. And they do this to preserve their own lives. They sin in order to live, and it results in their death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. You know, this is not only about spiritual death, but physical death as well. Sin does not cease to be a cause of death once you become a believer. It just ceases to decide your final destiny. But sin in the body of any person deteriorates, breaks down. It drives that person quickly towards death. We saw that in 1 John. 1 John 5, 17. The sin unto death. All sin is unto death. The question is whether you stop sinning or not. Whether you agree with God about that sin and you turn around. Whether you stop going down towards Egypt and start going back up towards Bethel and Ai. Let's look at Abram's progress of sin. The first thing he did was abandon God's will. What God had revealed to him, he went beyond this teaching. He went beyond this truth. Abram moves on his own will. Abram flirts with the world. Abram fears for his life. Abram lies. Abram endangers his wife and the promise of a seed. And Abram tempts his neighbors into sin through lying. But for the grace of God, there go we. And we can. At any point, it is a terrible lie that Christians would cease to sin just because they have become believers. Christians cease to sin more and more as they come to know who it is who has saved them as they come to know the Lord, as they come to depend on him. That is the process of sanctification by which we are removed bit by bit from the power of sin. 1 John 3, 6, no one who abides 
in him since. Is Abram abiding in God? Is he abiding in his will? He's walking right on through it, right on past it, going off on his own, and it results in him sinning. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. He keeps going in 1 John 3, 7. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who does righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does sin is of the devil. Abram is operating from the source of the devil. He is operating from the cosmos system. He has not yet learned to live in God's will. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Well, Abram, flirting on the edge of disaster here, comes into Egypt. He crosses that border out of the land into Egypt. And what happens? The Egyptians see the woman and they see that she is beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her. They praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Once again, Moses is a fantastic writer. In Genesis 3, 6, the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one wise, and so she took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. The serpent deceived the woman. The woman abandoned God's appraisal and praised the item that God had said is not good. She decided for herself that it was good, that it was a delight, that it was desirable. Because of Abram's lie, these Egyptians thought Sarai was fair game. They saw her, they praised her, and they took the woman. Abram here also uses the woman instead of her name, Sarai. I think he's pointing right back to Genesis 3 and saying, see, Abram's got some work to do. As we get towards the end of this morning's message, we will also see that Moses is paralleling this with the Jews' exit from Egypt. He's going to show a lot of similarities and parallels, but the difference being that their exit from Egypt was done the right way. Here, Abram, it's done the wrong way. Both exit with riches from Egypt. One does it the right way. One does it the wrong way. And so Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. You can't say no to Pharaoh. But here's a bit of irony. Abram didn't want to be killed. He'd rather be treated well. Well, they do treat him well. Therefore, he treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. Whoop-de-doo. He gave up his wife. He gave up the promises of God. He put in jeopardy the seed promise, the land promise, and he's got a couple animals and people who eventually will die. Look how different Abram is going to be in just a few years. 
This lesson in Egypt is a big one in his life. It's unfortunate that he had to learn it this way, but at least he learned it. Because look at what happens at the end of Genesis 14, when Abram has learned to depend on God. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God, most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, for fear you would say, I have made Abram rich. This is spiritual maturity. This is looking on the world and saying, I don't need that. I have something much better. I have the promises of God. The promises of God are sure. The promises of God are eternal. In Hebrews 11, looking at the New Testament interpretation of of Abram or commentary on Abram, says all these died in faith, speaking of the patriarchs. They died believing without receiving the promises. Well, Jesus is going to tell the Sadducees that because they died without receiving these promises, that they are guaranteed resurrection because God is that faithful. But here, the author of Hebrews is argument, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they had went out, from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. They could have gone back to Haran. But as it is, they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Israel will receive her blessings, and Abram, in the flesh, will be there to experience it. And if this means God resurrecting him from the dead, this is what is going to happen, and this is what is going to happen. God will resurrect these patriarchs from the dead when he establishes his kingdom on this earth. They will experience these blessings. God is faithful about it. 1 John 2.17 says, The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. So ultimately here we are looking at Abram's failure. We are looking at his failure when he tries to walk by means of the flesh. So that he can learn that he needs to walk by means of the spirit or by means of the word of God the promises that are given to him. It begins by the Lord interceding. This is the first time God is brought up since Abram leaves him in Shechem. And we see that the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues, not because of Abram, but because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Abram failed to protect his wife. He failed to trust God. Abram was faithless, but God is faithful. And here he intercedes to protect his own promise because a seed is going to be produced through Abram and through Sarai. Nothing is going to thwart this promise because it came from God and God cannot lie. 
much to the contrary, Abram, who seems to think that lying is his best chance of living. Now, there's a lot of interesting parallels here. We won't go too much into depth with them all, but I want to conclude here our parallel with Genesis 3. Because the next thing that happens to Abram is that Pharaoh calls him up. Pharaoh is now standing as Abram's judge, just as God had stood judge over the serpent, the woman, and Adam. Here, Pharaoh, or here, Abram rather, is being judged by a pagan king, though. And even this pagan king has a better grasp on morality than Abram, the recipient of the promises of God. This is a shameful moment, and though Abram seemed to have all the answers on their way into Egypt, here he is deftly silent. He knows his guilt. But Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Genesis 3.13, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Well, Abram has no excuse. The lie originated with Abram. He can't point it off to someone else and say, I was deceived. No, he has become himself the deceiver. He is guilty. Pharaoh is guilty of violating Abram's wife, but in the same way that Eve was guilty of eating the fruit because she was deceived. She was guilty. She did it. But who received the greater condemnation? The one who knew what he was doing. The one who decided to walk away from the will of God willingly. Pharaoh continues, why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? This is a phrase used in the Hebrew of sealing the deal. It's a good thing she was barren at this point. Abram was really flirting with disaster. He was taking things into his own hands. It is never a good idea. And so Pharaoh says, now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. Pharaoh, as the god over that land, commissioned that they be sent away from it, that they be exiled, and he even sent his servants to make sure that they did so. Genesis 3.24, he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. They were kicked out of this land. They were not supposed to be there in the first place, though. Not everything is a parallel. But this is a shameful thing. Abram brought shame to himself, to his wife, to Pharaoh, when what was he called to do? He was called to be a blessing. 
Abram can't do this on his own. He can't do this by means of his own flesh because his flesh leads him to self-protect, which ultimately is self-destruction. But to lean on God, to lean on God's promises, to trust God who cannot fail, this is what we are called to do. Now here's the parallel with Israel, because Moses has structured this account of Abram's failure to show Israel's faith, to show God's faithfulness towards Israel and what happens when they walk in his will. In Genesis 47, 4, we see that they went down into Egypt because of famine. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land for there is no pasture for your servants, flocks, uh, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, please let your servants live in the land of Goshen. So the Egyptians, once they were there, and they were there probably about 200 plus years before they ever became servants. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously. And they made their lives bitter with the hard labor in mortar and bricks and at all kinds of labor in the field all their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. You see, neither Abram and Sarai nor Egypt or, uh, nor Israel went down into Egypt expecting to be taken into bondage or captivity. But here, Israel is, not because of a lie, but because they became a threat in the land, just as Abram would have become a threat had he been Sarai's wife, which he was, her husband. And so Israel, as a threat to the Pharaoh, is put in bondage. The males are seen as a threat, and so they are sent to execution. The woman conceived and bore a son, that's Moses, and when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And so Moses ended up being cared for by his own mother through deception. Now the Lord said to Moses, One more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. The flavor is a little different here. They had undergone 10 plagues, each one worse than the previous. God is loosening Pharaoh's grip on captive Israel. But ultimately, these plagues are going to cause Israel to be driven out of the land, not simply let go but exiled, kicked out, summarily dismissed. However, not in shame here. And this is one of the big differences. Israel did not deal poorly with Egypt. Egypt dealt poorly with Israel. So where God had told Abram to go out and be a blessing and that those who blessed him would be blessed and those who cursed him would be cursed. Here, Egypt or Israel had gone in and they were a blessing to Egypt. But Egypt dealt with them lightly anyways. Egypt cursed them. 
So Egypt came under this curse, and Israel was innocent. Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron at, the, uh, at night and said, Rise up, get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel, and go, worship the Lord as you have said. Take both your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and go, and bless me also. The Egyptians urged the people to send them out of the land in haste, and they said, We will all be dead. Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, for they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have their request, thus they plundered the Egyptians. Both left the land of Egypt with riches. Abram, through the wisdom that is below. But Israel, by the leading of Moses, who was a faithful servant to the Lord, who had spent years maturing in his faith in the wilderness, who came back and was leading Israel now, they did this the right way. They let God fight the battle. They let God cause the Egyptians to cast them out. One fortune is good. The other fortune, just gained by the wrong means, is bad. This has some parallels with us as well, especially as we look at the early church and the early Jewish sect of Christianity. See, the church is and was a Jewish institution. For the first more than a decade of the church, it was primarily Jews. In fact, probably 25 or 30 years before the Gentiles, by number, overtook the Jews. And one of the very first things that the church was dealing with was Jews defecting back to rabbinic Judaism. The book of Hebrews was written to tell these Jews to be faithful to the Lord who saved them through the Messiah. Spends 10 chapters showing them how Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is superior to everything in rabbinic Judaism. That he is the fulfillment, the culmination, what everything is pointing to. And so not to abandon faithfulness to the Messiah, because the Messiah has been faithful to them. And one of the things here that this author of Hebrews is telling these Hebrew Christians who are flirting with the world, tempted to revert back to rabbinic Judaism so they would stop being persecuted by the unbelieving Jews. But AD 70 is drawing near where God is going to judge Jerusalem and the land of Israel, specifically the Temple Mount, with the sack of Jerusalem. These Jews were told by Jesus at the Olivet Discourse to get out of the land when they saw the city surrounded by armies. And when the city was first surrounded by armies, and then by divine intervention, the supply chains failed, Rome had to retreat, coming back a year and a half later. Israel had a very short window 
to exit the city. But they had reintegrated to some extent with temple Judaism. And they were not getting out of the land. So the author of Hebrews writes to convince them to forego their worldly comfort and to seek the Lord. To get out, just as he had said. Even if it means persecution from their fellow Jews who are not believers. And so in Hebrews chapter 3, the writer says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. He is encouraging them all to remain faithful. Be encouraged one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned and whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Israel, when they were brought out of Egypt by Moses, got up to the edge of the promised land and their trust in God's faithfulness faltered. God, who they trusted to bring them out of the land of Egypt, they did not trust to bring them into the land of promise. And they whined and moaned and complained, did God bring us out to the wilderness so that he could kill us? No, he brought you out into the wilderness so you could enter into the land. And we are like that as well sometimes. Did God bring me into this life of being a believer just so everyone else around me could get rich by worldly means and I am set here in humility? I am set here with less than the rest of my friends who decided not to go to seminary, but to pursue some big fancy degree that gets them lots of money. These are the th honest things that go through our minds as believers. Why is this person getting rich off their wheeling and dealing? While I have to suffice for a promise awaiting in heaven. Well, that promise awaiting in heaven is so much better. It is eternal in value. But even the rest and the peace that we have as believers here on earth, that is what he is talking about here in Hebrews. He's not talking about future rewards. He's talking about the experience of blessing today, and it doesn't always look like what the world calls blessing. You see, being rich is not a blessing. Not really. It's more of a responsibility. But what does he say? Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest. Israel was standing on the edge of the promised land, knowing exactly what the will of God was, that they enter into it, and he is going to go ahead and fight ahead of them. While a promise remains of entering his rest, if any one of you may seem to have come short of it. This is walking in God's will. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. You see, faith can be good enough for us to get saved initially, but then faith will fail. Now, some false teachers will teach that then God's faithfulness towards you is going to fail if yours towards him fails. 
But no, the guarantee of salvation is secure, but guess what? You're not walking in his will. These blessings that can be experienced by the believer who is in intimate fellowship with the Lord are not going to be experienced by this believer who says, I believed him for salvation and then my life didn't immediately get better. He's not faithful to his promises, I guess. Well, the question is, do you understand his promises? Do you understand what he has said he will do in your life? He's not going to get you rich by Egypt. He is going to get you rich in the promised land. Building up rewards in that heavenly land that we are waiting for. That heavenly land that we are seeking. Rewards that cannot be corrupted by rust or moths. Eternal rewards. This is what we're looking forward to. And we enter into that rest day by day, moment by moment, as we choose to trust his word. Rather than our own will. Rather than thinking he is faithless. Rather than thinking he has not fulfilled his promises to me. So I guess I need to figure this out myself. I need to do it myself. I need to go here and get my riches my own way because God's not good about it. Do we understand the promises of God? For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. The promises that we have were not just for initial salvation, but for a life lived with him, for all the riches of grace that grow a believer from spiritual infancy, into maturity, and for the promise that we will be conformed to his image when he returns. The guarantee of eternal life with him. Salvation is much more than just securing where your final destiny is. Salvation is a new life for a new creation. And there is much to learn about it, and there is much to do in said life. Matthew 16.25 talks a bit about that life which is after initial salvation called discipleship. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now Jesus is here probably talking about the persecution that is going to come upon the Jews when they kill him. Immediately before this, In chapter 16 of Matthew, Jesus had told them for the first time that he was going to Jerusalem to be killed. And now he says to them, you might be too. Well, man, wouldn't that make you want to jump ship? Well, if my life isn't secure, if I have to face the possibility of dying, then what good is this promise? Well, it's a promise of eternal life. And they have it already. But what does it mean to walk with him and to grow with him? Sometimes that means suffering with him. So much the better. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Now, I don't know why the NASB translates soul here where it translates life earlier. This is just someone's natural life. I think this is imposing theology onto the text. Because we aren't going to lose our eternal soul. That's nowhere in the context here. 
But what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he dies anyways? All the riches that Abram got in his life, those perished with him. It's the promise of God's resurrection into the land of his promise and the promises that God has in store for him. The goods of this world, the bios, as John put it in his epistle, those get us through this life. They are a means of survival, not the end of this life, not the goal, not the purpose. It's a tool. Sometimes we spend our whole lives seeking to accumulate more of this tool. Sometimes it kind of seems like COVID all over again, people stockpiling toilet paper. We get a sudden idea that we just need this to live. So we want to get as much of it as we possibly can. But having it on our shelf isn't really the goal. Some of us just seek getting rich so much that we spend our whole lives seeking after a bigger career, a better job. I've got one friend and it's sometimes baffling to talk to her. She's still in education, just like I am. She's seeking to be a lawyer at this point. And I keep asking her, well, what's the end goal? Well, and then I'll go get this degree. To what end? Well, then I can get this job. Okay, and then you'll be satisfied. Well, then I'll probably want to get this degree. It's like, well, what is the end? Sometimes it just seems like distracting yourself through life so you don't have to think about what the end is. But not so for Christians, not so for believers. We spend this life looking towards the world to come, enjoying this life with God, even when that life means suffering, suffering by the world's standards. What will a man give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. 1 John 4, 16 says, We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. This is the faith that we rest in. God loves us. God has taken care of where we are going, and he has taken care of the deficit that we have as humans void of righteousness. He has imputed that righteousness onto us. He has filled us with love that we cannot get elsewhere so that we can give it to others. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. This is fellowship. We know his promises. We know what he has done for us. We trust it. We believe it. We live by that. By this, love is perfected with us. It has reached its goal so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. We know looking forward that we have no need of anything else to save our lives but Christ Jesus and his life shed for us. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Yes, he shed his life, but guess what? He rose again. We have died with him. We are also resurrected with him. We live today in that newness of the spirit because our spirits have already been resurrected with him. We are just waiting for the body to catch up. That's why we don't walk by means of the flesh, because this flesh is still corrupted by the world. When we choose that as our power source, we're going to walk just like Abram into the world. 
We're going to make a mess of things. And then we're going to say, oh, I'm a believer. I'm a believer. And people will say, well, then I don't want to be a believer if that's what a believer looks like. Isn't that just a heartbreaking response? We as believers are ambassadors. We have been given the riches of grace so that we might live lives of righteousness. But this is not guaranteed. We enter into his rest day by day, trusting his promises. And he works through us to bless those around us. The next couple of weeks, we will watch Abram begin to walk by means of faith and become a blessing to those around him because God is able to work through one who is walking in his will. Just as a quick conclusion here, Genesis 12 is not Genesis 15. That should go without saying. Genesis 15 is an eternal covenant that God makes with Abram after he sees that Abram has been faithful to the two commands that he gave him in uh, Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12 begins a new dispensation where man has responsibility, one end of the bargain to take up. He is tested in the sense that he is told to separate. He finally finishes separating in chapter 12, and he is told that he needs to be a blessing once he gets into the land. And he learns that that has to be by depending on God to be a blessing through him. Once Abram is faithful in those two areas, God gives him an eternal covenant, one which has no conditions on him. Now this is something that should become more and more astounding to us as we understand what God does. He gives an imperfect man and one who is, at this point, yes, he's demonstrated some maturity by the end of Genesis chapter 14, but as we get into chapters 16, 17, 18, we see that he's not fully matured. So God will give an imperfect man a guarantee, a covenant that God will fulfill with no conditions on him. Only God is going to be able to work this covenant for glory. And as we'll see probably through the next decades that we're together, if the Lord doesn't come as soon as I finish the message this morning, that Israel, apart from God, would completely fail in this covenant. They would completely fail to experience this blessing. But God is going to bring it about. God is perfectly faithful. And the more that we can observe that in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the more our lives today should be molded by that fact that God will not fail in any promise that he has given to us. And so we want to learn those promises. We want to learn his will by reading his word. And we want to trust him that he will do it. Because when our faith fails, God does not fail. But we won't experience him working. So in conclusion, before Abram was a spiritual father, he was a spiritual infant. And yes, he went into Egypt like a baby, whining and crying. God gave him a few swats there and sent him back up. But guess what? He is going to be better for it. He's going to grow up. And he's going to begin growing up pretty fast. This passage shows us Abram at his worst, a baby believer who has not yet learned to walk by faith. Abram's sinful behavior follows a very regular progression from self-will to arrogance to fear to deception to injury and to shame. This passage explains Abram's initial failure to be a blessing, and he must learn to depend on God.
Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful uh, exposition of the life of Abram. We are encouraged to see that you can use believers even after major failure. We are encouraged that the blessing that we are to be in this world is not our prerogative, but your work through us. And our prerogative is simply to rest in you, to trust in your promises, and to be faithful to your word. We praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.